This episode of Behind the Brand is brought to you by Boston Pizza. Boston Pizza's delicious new holiday menu is the gift that keeps on giving. Like their new mac and cheese five, which is made with not one, not two, but five cheeses. That's right. Cheddar, mozzarella, provolone, gouda, and parmesan. As a sweet bonus, you'll get a free Ferrero Rocher three-pack when you order a feature item from the holiday menu. Let's get festive. Visit Boston Pizza today, order online, or call your local BP and book your holiday party. I'm a big believer in like trying to like test the gist of an idea very fast to build conviction and then double down on it. Welcome to Behind the Brand, presented by Neo. We take an inside look at the leaders behind today's most influential brands. I'm your host, Jeff Adamson. As co-founder of Neo Financial and Skip the Dishes, I'm fascinated by what it takes to build great companies. On this podcast, we'll learn from leaders that are reimagining, transforming, and innovating in the financial and retail industries across Canada. Let's get going. I'm excited to introduce Ray Reddy, co-founder and CEO of one of Canada's foremost consumer brands, Ritual. Ray is a self-proclaimed technology optimist and one of Canada's leading thinkers on product and technology. Ray has started two companies, Push Life, which was acquired by Google in 2011, and Ritual. Founded in 2014, Ritual is a social ordering app that taps networks of colleagues for fast and easy ordering at a variety of local restaurants and coffee shops. With his Ritual co-founders, Ray is solving problems that weren't being solved before and building the future of local commerce. Well, to start out, Ray, and this might embarrass you a little bit, I'm extremely excited for this conversation because you're one of the few people that you know you get to meet where you have a five-minute conversation with you and I'm left thinking about it for weeks on end. Thanks, Jeff. No, I, I appreciate you saying that. That's a very complimentary of me, but I appreciate you saying that. There's people talking about economic recession. There's talking about pullback. It's hard enough running a company, but what's keeping you optimistic these days? It's been a, a tough two and a half years for us because I think a lot of companies are seeing evidence now as a recession sets in. Mm-hmm. But we didn't see that for two and a half years. So I kind of feel like we've been at this party a long time and a bunch of new companies are, are just joining it today. So I, I think we've been forced to kind of remain optimistic and, and just try to have a perspective on things for, for a while. In a strange way for us, heading into a recession is actually probably net positive for us versus the other way around. I think, you know, one of our big beliefs as we were building consumer products was you have to deliver value to consumers, ideally without increasing price, ideally keeping price the same. So I think, you know, the special equation for consumers is if you can deliver more value at the same price or even at a lower price. And I think that's what we've been really focused on. You read a lot of articles out there about, you know, the price markup on food delivery. And I think people were were willing to pay those premiums you know, going through a pandemic. It can often be 50 to 90% more than in store. You know, our focus now is actually as people become more price sensitive, I actually think that's where, where Ritual really shines and, you know, delivers a lot of value, both to people, you know, to companies. But, but I think throughout, you know, just to go back to your question, what keeps us optimistic, I think we just believe that if you look at the overall arc of technology local, that consumers increasingly want convenient digital ways of interacting and transacting with local businesses. And we think that that arc is not going to change. Um, mm-hmm. We're, in fact, to some degree, you know, in the infancy of all of it. As the world changes, though, you have to kind of rethink and reposition yourself al- along those lines. You know, I, th- I think sort of like the ground truth hasn't changed, which is there's just so much opportunity for how to uh, enable 
better digital relationships and better digital transactions between you know, consumers and businesses. And I think there's going to be problems to solve there for decades. I guess what keeps us optimistic is there's just such big problems mm-hmm. to solve always that we, we try to focus on, on the opportunity. You're thinking the long game where I think some people might be thinking, all right, we're going to go through a year or two recession here, but that's not going to make people not want to order things online. They're not going to stop wanting things to be digital. Yeah. And I think the real things you have to tackle as a leader, these are sometimes very painful things. I'm not trying to make make small as that. But you know, when you have slowdown in growth, when people become more price sensitive, it doesn't mean that there are like tactical changes you you may have to make in terms of how you think about your marketing budgets and headcount and people. And we see many examples of companies who made a calculated decision to grow you know, because of what they were seeing. And then, you know, the world changed again and they had to adapt to it. And so adapting is painful, especially when the easy ones are, are numbers on a spreadsheet that, you know, tough ones are when you're talking about, you know, real people. And I think most leaders take that that responsibility very seriously, but you can't, you can't always get them right. And so I guess I, I view it as like, we're very long-term optimistic on technology and its ability to change things and make the experience of connecting consumers with businesses better. So mm-hmm. I think we, we're big believers of that. I think there's going to be a lot of bubs on the way though. Mm-hmm. And you need to have the right focus on tactically solving short-term problems while still keeping your eye on the ball. And I found that to be a very difficult skill. That's the work in progress. So much is happening in the 24-hour news cycle and you can't be chasing headlines and you can't be doing you know, the flavor of the day. You know, A lot of leaders will be feeling the pressure of responding to something that's happening in the moment, but at the same time it's saying like, listen, yeah, we acknowledge that these things are happening currently, but we've got to stay focused on our long-term bet. And those fundamentals haven't changed. But this isn't your first company. Ritual is not your first company. You started another company in 2008, which was you know, in the wake of the last recession. How does this feel different coming through it the second time? And are there any lessons that you are drawing upon this time around that you're like, I remember what this was like and I can do this again? And then are there also some that you're like, no, it's different and I actually need to ignore what happened previously and do it differently? The things that are easier the second time around tend to be capital and early brand. I think that uh, I would say that as a first-time entrepreneur, often it's almost like you have to gain a lot of credibility. And so it makes the, the, the first hires difficult. It makes the first fundraise a bit difficult, at least back in 2008. Because at, at that point, building the tech company in Canada, like just, it's not even the same. So I, I actually don't even know how much of that experience really is even applicable because it, it, it feels like an entirely different ecosystem. Raising a million dollar round for even a post-revenue company was so challenging back in 2008. And I feel like we're in a world today where that's like a reasonable person with a, with a decent idea in the last decade kind of raises raises more <laughs> than that based on a PowerPoint presentation. So, you know, I mean, in, that, in some ways it's good, but I think that the part that doesn't change is no amount of capital can buy you product market. And I feel like it is like the ultimate leveling of the play field. You see examples of companies who, who raise lots of money, who are not successful. And you see examples of people in their basements who, who bootstrapped in, and in the end, less of that they built very large companies, they, I would say that they've solved important problems for consumers and are rewarded. And so I think that sometimes it's hard to lose track of that. I think a lot of people equate raising capital by being able to hire people as success to some degree. And mm-hmm. I think all of those people learn learn a very, you know, a painful and hard lesson that capital buys you time, 
And at the end of the day, you have mm-hmm. to actually solve an important problem for somebody. And if you don't do that, no amount of capital to really, can really save you. And I think that mm-hmm. the challenging part of that is there's also some luck in it. It's arrogant to think, I mean, you know, if you put me in a lot of the same situations, again, like, I, I don't know that you can continually repeat success over and over. I think a few things are true, but I, I do think that to build large companies, there's definitely like a, an element of, of luck and timing and getting getting a lot of that right. And it can be daunting. <laughs> I, I love the comparison about no amount of money can buy a product market fit. It reminds me of competing in sports. Even in my own life, I, I went overseas and competed in fairly impoverished parts of the world. I remember one time I was in Cuba, competing against athletes that actually had no real equipment or anything at all. And they were incredible world-class athletes. So it doesn't matter if you come from a, a wealthy nation like Canada. At the end of the day, once you're competing, you know, we're all on the same playing field and, and you can't buy that success. It's one of those things where I feel like a lot of capital can actually be like super distracting to leaders and to companies. You know, I've seen many, many examples of companies who, who've done that where the abundance of capital just ultimately means that they have negative contribution margins. And it's weird that that is such a, I don't know that there's ever been a decade where you would find so many companies as, as you'd find in this decade where that's been true, because having that much capital allows for things like that to happen and for them to not be caught early. So I guess like capital when used well is a wonderful tool to have, but very often I think people see that as like the solution mm-hmm. And I think it actually just becomes a crutch for not doing all of the hard work that, that is you know, required to solve the problem. Yeah, I think it was Sarah Tavell that said, you want to use capital as a weapon, not as fuel. When capital is in abundance, you see a lot of people using it as fuel and depending on it. And you know the capital can come and go. You went from, from Push Life, you were acquired by Google. And I'm really interested in this because a lot of people will go from a small company to a big company or a big company to a small company. And they they find that transition quite difficult. What was that like for you going from being an entrepreneur, you know, you're the the captain of the ship, and then you basically go to the mothership now. You're one guy in a company of 150,000 people. How did you make that transition? And then how would you think about going it back the other way, back again to starting your own company again? Google is a lot, I mean, they were probably about 20,000 people at that time, which is still very large. The transition to Google was a very positive experience. I think that they've really figured out a lot of processes and things that have enabled them to scale. And I, I actually think that I learned a lot in my time. It was a good trade. Um, I contributed value, but I also got you know, a lot out of it. I think one of the biggest ones was Google is one of the few companies that really knows how to like attract and retain world-class talent. It's a phrase that's tr- Sort of around a lot, but I think it just helps you really calibrate. For me, at least, it helped me really calibrate on like, what is a good product manager? I don't mean good based on maybe the part of the country that you're in. I mean, what does good look like at a world class Because, you know, they, they truly are and they, they truly do hire the best in the world. So I think that was a big deal. And it's hard to get like, those are the kinds of things that you can't really read about or learn in school. Like, you can't really define what a good product manager looks like. But, but you know one when you meet. And I think when you meet a few people like that, you, you start to kind of just pattern match and see what they have in common, how they hire them, how they behave in different situations, good and bad. And I, I think that being just immersed in that environment, you just get very calibrated on talent, which I found to be not being in the valley. I found that in 2008, a very hard thing to do. The tech talent was just so sparse that oftentimes it was like, well, here is a engineer or, you know, and... I think that was one big one. Well, Google has 
their culture and they, they try to infuse the culture of a lot of entrepreneurs. And, and at least during that period of time, I think Google really did want to lose their like startup hustle culture. And so they acquired a lot of companies and actually went out of their way to try to both retain and empower those entrepreneurs. Most entrepreneurs became PMs at Google. And I think they found that to be like a nice way of injecting a lot of entrepreneurial energy. You fight different battles of large companies. You know, the good news is there's a lot of capital, so you don't have to, <laughs> you don't spend your time fundraising and having to spend all that time with investors. But managing internal stakeholders is like a thing. It's not that one's better or worse. It's just stakeholder management, but a different set of stakeholders. And you trade the problem of not being on the capital raise treadmill um, mm -hmm. for, you know, a different problem of just of knowing how a company works internally and how to get things done. And that, that takes you know, a mm -hmm. while to figure out it at every company. I would say like overall, it was a learning experience. Is it universal though? Like I think a lot of people who work at larger companies, they, they have ideas, they want to get them done. Sometimes they feel constrained that the company takes too long to make decisions. And the way you would do it in a startup is definitely not the way. I think, you, I think it's kind of like, it, it's a different game. And if you try and play the game the way that you and startup won't work. And you know, if you try to play the startup game the way that you would at a large company, that's never going to work either. So I do think mm -hmm. that it's definitely a transition. It's a different skill set. And so that's why I think most people who are really good at small company stuff tend to not be really good at large company stuff and vice versa. I think that Google and Amazon, a lot of large companies understand that the only path to not being a large company and, and having all of the negativity associated with it is you have to proactively break yourself into small companies. You know, and Amazon has their two pizza thing approach. And I think even Google has really gone out of their way to really separate properties and give them a lot of independence. And you can view Google as one large company or a hundred different smaller, you know, mm -hmm. small to mid-sized companies that are also there. And and you can get a very, what, what I've at least found is that at Google, you can never have the startup experience, but you can definitely have the feel of working at a multi-hundred person company there. And mm -hmm. I think a lot of people chose to do that. It certainly wasn't like one large behemoth. And I feel like companies who operate in that way probably struggle, really struggle to retain mm -hmm. early stage. Presumably after selling Push Life, working at Google for three and a half years, you, you weren't desperate for a job. Why go back to ground zero again and start from scratch? One of the things that I formed a lot of conviction in while I was at Google, so I, so I actually ran the product team for, for mobile commerce globally there. And one of the things we spent a lot of time on was local. And I think what was clear was that while retail and travel had gone online a decade or two ago, one of sort of the last remaining large segments of consumer spending that was still very quote unquote analog was local, right? The way that people transacted, not, not just with restaurants, but with most local businesses was mm -hmm. really quite disconnected from the internet. And I think we, we really believed that this last decade was was the one where local would go online in a pretty big way. And I think that ended up happening. And you know the the pandemic certainly accelerated it like four or five years. But, but I think that's that's what I believed. It wasn't clear sort of what the end state would be, but I, I just really felt like there was a very very large opportunity there, and I was very excited to actually build a product and be a part of that transition. I really enjoy exploring cities. I, I find that local businesses are. I find I have a lot in common with them. They're entrepreneurs. They're very passionate about their products. Saying they're inventive. They're artists. And I find that I, I really relate to them and connect with them. And, then, and I actually really enjoy spending time with them. And so I think I was just like naturally drawn to this group of people. And just, I kind of knew, I wasn't sure what the shape of a solution would look like, but I, I, I kind of just mm -hmm. felt like 
this is where I want to spend my time. And I think the other thing that was clear to me was that Google had tried a number of things in local. And again, like what Google is very good at doing is they'll try, they'll shut things down and they'll try again, and they'll, mm-hmm. they'll just keep going at it. But at least in the time that I was there, one of the things that I observed was, and this is a good example of a problem that large companies are ill-equipped to solve. My conclusion was that local would be one, not at a country level. It would be one at a city level or even a neighborhood because that, that's just how the nature of local, you don't have people traveling around a country transacting small businesses. They tend to be, again, not just in a city, they tend to be hyper And large companies really struggle. That idea that you would build a solution that would only work in a city, let alone a country. If you're if you're a company like Google, it's actually really, really hard to build a product that only works in a single country. And so I just found that there was this like deep incompatibility between how a large global online company thinks about the world. There's just like so many constraints with what the shape of a solution has to look like. Well, it has to be global. That just like with that starting point, it's hard to build something from the ground up. So that was kind mm-hmm. of my conclusion after you know a number of conversations was just that like this just wouldn't this was not the kind of thing that could organically happen at Google. And that's why I decided that it was more that I wanted to be part of the space and just figured that it could not happen inside mm-hmm. of a large company. So I should go through this. When you were thinking about ritual then like and ritual is is kind of aggregating together all sorts of different shapes and sizes of, of restaurants. Did you hyper localize the product or did you rely on just this the local supply to really drive that local feel? It was both. You know, I think one of our big insights was that you would win at a neighbor. Especially when it came to maybe you can divide up local into sort of two things. One is, you know, where the store comes to you, which is delivery, and one is where you have to go to the store which is many segments in fact, right? It's health and beauty. Mm-hmm. It's the vast majority of food is still picked up in store, even if it's digitally ordered. And so we believe that in those examples, it was all about building very good density of assortment in a very in a small area. And you need to kind of do that repeatedly over and over again. So, so in fact, I think our success was we didn't actually try to solve the problem at a city level. We solved the problem at a neighborhood level and we went very, very small in a way that most people know the question. In the early days, it seemed like it was too small uh, to talk about neighborhoods. I'm a big believer in like trying to like test the gist of an idea very fast to build conviction and then double down on it. And but we kind of concluded, why do we have to even do a neighborhood? What if we could just do a single office? What if we could simulate having good coverage around an office building and providing those office workers with a more convenient way to access their work dates? And so we actually didn't even publish an app in an app store. We actually didn't have a name <laughs> even for the company. We were in the process of developing and we were able to get our app onto a few hundred employees phones and with less than 20 restaurants around that building, we proved product record. My perspective was if you're solving an important problem and, and delivering convenience, then how beautiful the pixels on the app are don't really matter. You just, you know, it's sort of a remote control for the real world. As long as it just like kind of works, you would be able to get the gist of it. And it worked. And people loved it, even though it was, in my opinion, crappy quickly. It was an app that was built by a handful of people in less than three months. But I think it kind of proved the core concept that if we had good coverage or the right assortment, then this was something that people would do as would do every day. Mm-hmm. Hence the name which ritual actually almost came out of the observation of happy boys. At what point did you feel like you had product market fit? Sometimes someone will kind of do what you just did and they'll go out and maybe the product just isn't good enough yet or they don't maybe know how to position it properly. And 
they don't get enough traction and they actually end up giving up too soon. H- how did you know that you had enough and, and, there was a, you, and you had enough conviction to, to, to say, hey, I'm going to go raise some capital for this idea? I think some of the hardest questions are ones where there isn't like a binary answer. There's not like you have part of the market fit, you don't have part of the market fit. Yeah, it's green or red. They're always on a spectrum and that's what makes them so difficult. And I think mm-hmm. no matter how strong your product market fit is, it could always be strong. <laughs> that's the other problem. And so it's really hard to say, to answer your question honestly, I think that it was probably three years into ritual and multiple VC rounds of funding where my personal answer was, I think we have product market because I just tend to be very skeptical. <laughs> and so, so I believe that even after we'd raised money, I was just very nervous and probably appropriately skeptical that like, but it could be bad, like not just a little better, like a lot better. I think that that's not a bad mindset. It's just the recognition that I think it was Jeff Bezos who said this is like the one thing about building consumer products is that consumers are eternally unhappy. And no matter what you do, it could be, <laughs> it could always be a whole lot better because their expectations just keep going up. And so it's a little relentless. Yeah. And I would say you kind of have to enjoy that because it could be a little, little sadistic otherwise. What are some of those mistakes that you see in product strategy or, or go to market in, in, people who you talk to in the circles that you run in? It's this idea that, that I think that I believed for a long time that product market fit was like an on a switch. And you think that the problem was even when you achieve it, maintaining it is an entirely different story because the world is changing around. I, I think that we've gone through this like multiple times where it can feel really good in a moment in time. And and I think again, the, the, the challenge with these things is like, it's there's no formula to define it, but you can feel it when you have. You can feel it in the organic traction you have. The only way I could describe it is when you have it in a very strong way, it, it feels like you're pushing a boulder down a hill. And when you don't have it, it really feels like you're pushing it up. And that's not very helpful. You can only kind of calibrate on that. And if you've been on both sides of it, and you, you mm-hmm. kind of see when you have it, how much easier you're right. Like it's almost like you can make a whole bunch of mistakes and things still work. And when you don't have it, you can execute so perfectly. And it feels like you make so little progress because you're pushing a boulder up a hill. <laughs> And I think the challenge is that I think there's many very rare examples of companies who have just like such strong product market fit. It's just so obvious and it's so enduring. I think for mm-hmm. many companies in many spaces over a long period of time, you kind of seesaw between the states, right? Because the world changes, innovation happens, competitors emerge, consumer expectations. Actually, just if nothing else, consumer expectations change. Just just mm-hmm. that is enough. Like what was good enough two years ago just, just isn't. So I think you're you're probably in a constant battle with yourself. And I, I think the mistake is probably to think that once you've achieved it, it's not it's not like a summit. It's not like, oh, I've gotten there and now I get to now I'm king of the hill mm-hmm. and I just have to do a little bit of work to maintain it. And I think it's just as much work to to maintain strong product market fit as it is to achieve over a long period. When I think about you, Ray, like you're one of the probably most brilliant product guys that I know. I wonder about the relationships between product engineering and marketing. Like, How do you think about those relationships, both within your experience at Google, Ritual, Push Life? Is it product-led or is it marketing-led or is it engineers? Like, How do you get these groups of people who all feel really strongly about their area to kind of work together and build something that consumers are going to love? I observed that the best teams and the best outcomes are when you have mutual respect, but a lot of disagreement, and you actually don't have a de facto term, which creates a lot of confusion and chaos. <laughs> but what it does is that it forces people, like I always think of it as three likes of the stool, which is engineering, product, and design. 
marketing is a part of that, but I would say like if at least from our lens of things, we call it EPD, engineering product design, and those are the three legs of the stool. There's a lot of other considerations that I would say have inputs like, you know, marketing, consumer surveys. If those three prongs are strong, they are working well cross-functionally across the company. So it's not, they're not doing things in a silo, but I think I think those three people or those three groups, you need a, a healthy respect, but tension between them, the pragmatic solution versus the problem you're really trying to solve. And what does V1 look like? And you know, what, what is good enough for an MVP? How do we test something? Like just, just something as simple as that, which is like one of the ways that we like to build products is we like to go to test and get it and get a signal before we double down. And so we have to mm-hmm. spend you know, a lot of time debating, well, what is a reasonable test? How do you get 80% of the signal with 20% of the work, which is very tough because sometimes if you don't, if you don't invest enough, then you get a signal that isn't worth worthwhile. <laughs> if you invest too much, you you go too slow and things don't work out. I, I don't think that there's a formula, but what I've observed is when those when you have strong leads in all of those three areas and they're constantly disagreeing, mm-hmm. <laughs> but in a way that has yeah. mutual respect for their disciplines, you get to an outcome that is better than what any one of them individually would have come up with. And it's almost like if the outcome is what nobody proposed in the first place. That's how you know you got you got to somewhere you know good. That's what you strive for. What inevitably happens is in many companies, one one leg of that stool can become very strong, or the other ones become weak. And so that's how I think you can see companies who tend to be more design led, product led, or engineering led. I don't know that that's necessarily an intentional strategy. I think the cycle for a long period of time that just becomes the other. Just saying, um, strong beliefs loosely held. Yeah. Yep. And that, that healthy tension between teams, but at the same time, knowing that, hey, we are all working towards the same outcome. And if you believe in something enough that you're going to kind of fight for it, but at the same time, be willing to back down when you actually think someone's got a really good point and you respect that they know their area and that you actually could be wrong. Totally. That's something that it comes with experience. And it's something I, I think we're all working on constantly. Hundred percent. Yeah, and that's that's important enough that that's actually in our values. We want people who have a lot of passionate opinions, but you're also willing to let them go and yeah. and get on board. One of the things that leaders are really really challenged with today is how we work together in this new world. Walk me through for a moment here, Ray, of what what has occurred over the last two and a half years from from your perspective. What, what what's happened? It's a very simple question with a very complex answer that I, I don't even know that I fully understand. Um, <laughs> I'm actually very curious about this problem. And I've spoken to a lot of people about this and happy to just sort of share my conclusions after you know many of these discussions. I'll, I'll start at a surface level and then maybe maybe start to zoom out a bit. I think we all all know what's happened you know, at the surface level, which is the pandemic forced people to work from home for those who could. And I think that the result of that was a fundamental renegotiation of the relationship between people and their employers. You can use a lot of other words for it, but I think that's that at the highest level, that's what's happening. And I think the question is like, how's it all going to end? My conclusion, actually, the, the funny thing is that there's there's so many heated discussions about what's right and what's wrong. And you have a bunch of pro remote work people who are very well organized, who you know have very loud phones on LinkedIn, you can kind of drown out what's going on. My observation is anything can work. Let's just let's just start with that. This idea that there is a right and a wrong is just wrong. That's like saying that there's a right and a wrong way to build companies. People have different strengths and weaknesses. For example, mm-hmm. I'm strong at product. So 
because of that, ritual tends to be product-oriented and product-centric. I have met many other CEOs and founders who are maybe strong at engineering or strong at sales and marketing, but the company has a DNA. And to just assume that all companies are the same and a company can just decide one day that mm -hmm. they want to be good at something different than they're not, is, that's a fallacy, right? And so you would never go to a company who's like, you know, for example, a very strong sales and marketing led company and be like, hey, why don't you guys be, become a product centric company? Could they do it? Yes. Like with enough time, energy, and resources, anyone can mm -hmm. do anything. Any company could be in. That's all like academically true. But pragmatically, those shifts just don't come. I think that there's that it's a good parallel to the discussion that's happening right now around remote, hybrid, and an office, which is certain companies, whether it is their founders or their management team, they tend to be very good or that their processes and the way that they work align really, really well with remote. They tend to be written cultures. They tend to be heavy on documentation and process. And so it's it's been in their DNA from the beginning. This isn't like a new thing that they adapt. Yeah. It's not to say that you can't adapt. It's like my yeah. previous comment that it's like kind of like trying to change the DNA of your company. It's it's possible. Yeah. It's really, really hard and most companies fit. And we've seen examples of companies who had a founder who was, for example, a product-driven founder, and they install a new CEO who has a different skill set. And we've seen this story before, right? It tends, yeah. it tends to not work because getting large cultures and large groups of people to change how they work is like very, very hard. And so I think that's kind of where we are today is that certain cultures were built and, and certain ways of working, you know, where I think about like our company even, I would say that probably half of the information flow at our company happen through informal information networks of people being around each other. And again, you could say, is that good or bad? I don't know, but that's how they worked. And when, when that gets stripped away, it had a meaningful impact on our velocity on how, mm -hmm. just because we didn't have the official documentation and channels for information to decide. I think what's, what's strange about what's happening right now is that there are a lot of companies who, who really their, their DNA needs people to come together more often. And I don't, I don't mean once a week. I actually think that, the, that strangely, the companies who I found are struggling the most are the hybrids because I feel like they commit to neither side because like to make a real concerted effort to have remote work be great takes exactly mm -hmm. that. It takes like a top-down commitment. It's kind of like saying, we're going to fundamentally change how we work as a company. We are going to change our DNA. That's a big deal. And when you, it's, again, it's not that it's not possible. It just takes mm -hmm. a lot of energy and resources, time. Conversely, you, you know, going back to the office has a lot of other challenges. Again, as part of this renegotiation of between employees and employers on, on what that all means. I feel like the strange middle ground is, in, is actually hybrid because you're neither doing a good job of remote because you, you say, well, we don't have to get really good at this because we're going to be in the office. Mm -hmm. But we're going to be in the office once a week or twice a week. And so you kind of end up with the worst of both, I feel, where it, it sounds like you're getting the best of both, but you actually end up with the worst of both. And again, I'm making very broad generalizations. I'm not saying that that's mm -hmm. true for everyone. I think for certain companies, that's worked out. But I would say the vast majority of people I talk to, I think this is the sentiment. What I would underscore is that it is not that one is right or one is wrong. I just think that people and companies aren't substitutable. Certain companies have a DNA, certain CEOs and, and management teams have a DNA for how they work. And 
you can't just like wave a wand and wish that it would be something different. That's just not how it works. And so yeah. I think for some companies who have taken this very seriously, they will make the shift. I think many will fail on the shift. But I think the other side of this too is when you look at the employee side, I actually think it was a net positive that there's a societal renegotiation of what an, an employer-employee relationship is. I think that there were many yeah. companies who perhaps crossed the line in terms of their expectations of employees in the past. I don't think it was everyone. I think it was a few. I think the problem now, though, is it's this like fundamental supposition that people do what's in their best long-term interest. And I think that we can see across society that that's just not true. When it comes to our attitudes around exercise and working out, when it comes to our attitudes around eating healthy food, when it comes to our attitudes about climate change, and some of the biggest problems we have as society, the root cause of most of them is people foregoing what the right and long-term thing is for the short-term, most convenient thing they can do. Their own self-interest versus the interest of the group. Because you, you hear a lot of people saying, I work better from home. But see, I would challenge even that. <laughs> because this idea, and I can tell you that, what does that actually mean? I, like what, I think a true statement is, today, I would prefer to work. This idea that mm. I would better at home, I think is something that a lot of people think is true. And it might be true for short periods of time, but I'll give you a simple example on sales. In theory, you know, we have a number of salespeople who call on uh, restaurants and, and merchants, and, and it's a job that involves getting a lot of phone calls. And in theory, this is a great example of a job where you should be more productive in theory if you don't have TV time and you could be sitting at home. It, it, it has all the checkboxes of, in theory, this should be better for an individual. I don't have to leave my house. I don't have to commute. I can, my, my home is quiet when I'm on calls. I don't have to deal with office distractions. So in theory, it sounds like this is an optimal job for doing it by yourself. But what we found was the exact opposite. It's true for 30 days or for 60 days. But in the end, what we found was it's a tough job being on the phone for six to eight hours a day. And it's isolated. And when people were in an office, and, and again, I don't mean what people say and what they say in surveys. There's a, a big difference between what people say and then what the actual results are. So I'm talking about the results. Our, our tenure would have been two, three plus years when people were together. There was a sense of camaraderie. There was a sense of we're in this together. There was a sense of how the pieces all connect of like, this is not about sales. It's about you know, advancing the business and I can see the impact it's having on other teams. And I think, and yes, people would say, well, you can simulate all of that through Slack. I just don't think that's true. At least I don't think that's true today. And what we found now is that a lot of those people struggle. They struggle with burnout, even though I wouldn't actually say that they're working hard, like more hours or doing anything more. I think it's just the isolating effect of it, yeah. where it doesn't feel like you are part of a larger team trying to mm -hmm. solve a problem on a mission. It feels like you know, you're a cog in the wheel. And I think that that burns people out. You know, we, there's a lot of discussion about burnout, but again, like my observation at least is that when, when you have a slowdown in productivity and more people complaining about burnout, there's only one thing in common here, which is like we've all changed how we work, and it's it's again yeah. there's some there's some very convenient things about it, but I think there's some very isolated things about it as well. And we've seen a dramatic drop in tenor and just how difficult these jobs can can be on people when when they don't come together. Well, and, and I think it's absolutely okay for someone to be not wanting to be in a car commuting an hour one way to get to work. I, that I can understand what, why someone wouldn't want to do that. Totally. 
But at the end of the day, if you really believe, in, and especially for Ritual, if you want to bring communities online and really kind of digitize the local communities, that mission is done by a group of people working together. While you may, in the short term, not want to commute or not want to go to the office, it's harder for other people to work with you if you're not there. Like you can't slack your way to a great culture. You can't get great culture through a Zoom call. You don't get that glue that brings everyone together as much when you're when you're at home. Okay, yeah, I, I did get the point of the head, right? Which is we all wear two hats. I wear the human being hat. As a human who's an employee of a company, he asked me, you know, would it be nice to be able to work in remote destinations or work from a cottage from time to time and not have to spend time commuting? Like, yes, yes to all of those things. And, and I think this is actually why it's such a struggle for management teams is that we all see the benefits, the individual benefits of remote work, and it's wonderful. The challenge is when you put your team leader hat on, when you ask the question you just did, let's just say 10% or 20% of people are very effective in your team. Well, what about the other 80%? If you're a manager, you're not just responsible for that 20, you're responsible for all of them. I think that's one of the, the really difficult pieces here, which is you can't just separate a company in that way and say, well, you all can, can work remotely and you all have to come into the office. Like it, it's, it's tough. My sense is that teamwork suffers in a big way. It is possible that the digital tools will catch up. You know, we've made huge strides. So again, this is not one of those that I'm not trying to be like a dinosaur be like, well, it's not going to happen. Universal work is, is necessary. I, I think we've made huge strides. I mean, just think about this conversation 10 years ago. Imagine imagine if the pandemic had happened 10 or 15 years ago and you'd be on phone calls with everyone, you Zoom. Like, you can imagine the same debate happening then. It's like, in theory, you could do your work. <laughs> in theory, you could. It'd just be very effective. And we've made we've made a huge stride forward now with, you know, mm -hmm. with video communication and you can do our work a lot better, Slack and things like that. My sense is that there's probably one more very big required, whether that's you know, AR, VR, whatever it is, not sure what it looks like, but I think that we're still quite far away from our digital interactions feeling anything similar to what they, they would be in person. And I feel like they're magnified in a group. It's to your earlier point though, Ray, about the DNA of your company. Like if you are a steady state, single digit growth over a year over year company, everything's documented, you have all the systems and processes in place, and that's kind of like the DNA of your company. Those companies will naturally be able to adapt to remote work or and maybe that will be the the dominating model. You can't expect every company to also be like that. You know, like when you started Ritual, you didn't mimic everything after Google and have catered lunches every single day and exactly. you didn't yep. you know, have Fridays off and because some things just aren't going to make sense and and I think it, we we do need to take a step back and say like just because it's right for someone who you saw on LinkedIn who's working on a beach, you know, in Mexico, their context might be totally different. Their job, their company, different stage, different industry, different DNA of the company. And I think that that does seem to be lost in some of the the narrative around the remote work where it's just, it's okay if you're a fully remote company. It's okay if you're not a fully remote company. It just comes down to what's going to work for your specific context at this stage in your company's life cycle. 100% agree. And I think it takes the right question. You, you said this a few minutes ago, is the right question what's best for you or what's best for a team of people? And I think this is actually a very question that will really divide a group. I think that's what we've tried to focus on, which is, and by the way, in none of this do I believe I have the answer. Unfortunately, the deeper you go into this, <laughs> yeah. it, there's actually more questions that come up than answers. Um, yeah. But I think the overarching principle that we've tried to, the, the thing we've been clear about with our employees, and by the way, we, we, we're trying to take the same approach we took with product, which is let's test things. 
I don't have a big answer. Let's test it. We, we know what it feels like to be fully remote. We know what it feels yeah. like to be hybrid. Let's retest maybe what's spending more time in an office with you. And, and by the way, if it doesn't improve things, that's okay. Like, we'll, we'll do it the way we would do anything else, which is run some experiments, see what it feels like. And, but the question was, again, we all have to be aligned in what, in what problem we're trying to solve. And yeah. the, the problem is not what is most convenient for employee XYZ. It is yeah. what enables our team to do their best. And, and the customer does seem to be being left out of the discussion because ultimately it comes down to what's best for the customer. Are we going to be able to build better products, offer lower prices, more convenience if we're together or remote? And, and I do think it does kind of get at the fundamental question of is what is right for the individual, what's right for the group or vice versa? Sometimes it is and sometimes it isn't. And that's where that's where leaders have their, you know, their work cut out. And I think the, the point I can't emphasize enough is that companies and people are not commodities. We're not, we're not all the same. You resent this, but it's like, I think this is the salient point in all of this. It's like companies have a DNA. They have people that have certain strengths and weaknesses. Companies have certain strengths and weaknesses. You can wish them to be different, but that doesn't make it so. Yeah. And, and I think it is, at least we're able to have these conversations where I'm not judging any companies for doing either. You know, if someone wants to go full remote, that's that's amazing. If, if they want to go full in person, that's great too. But at least COVID has forced us to have the discussion about it. Totally. And I think, I think a lot of employers are you know, a lot more open to flexibility. Which I think is very positive. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that we have gotten gotten accustomed to working from home when necessary. And whatever the dominant model will be for an individual company is really what's going to end up making that company successful. And I really appreciate your perspective on that, Ray. I think it's uh, very timely too, as a lot more people talk about coming back to the office. It'll be interesting to see kind of what comes out, but more on an individual level, not necessarily on like, oh, okay, all of Toronto is back in the office. It's like, well, yeah, maybe some will and maybe some will stay home. Yeah, the last thing that I would add to this discussion is I, I think the net positive in this overall is that historically, there was always a bit of a supply demand problem with talent and technology, right? There's always more more demand for tech workers than there was supply. And so as a result, most tech companies had a lot of perks and benefits and they just treated their employees really well. One of our beliefs all along was you treat people like adults. These aren't they aren't children. You don't have to set all these weird rules. And we we've always had a lot of flexibility as a company. It's like we're not going to question why you need to work from home because you know you have a childcare issue, whatever it is. That's your life, and we just trust that in the grand scheme of things, if you're if you're bought in and you're going to help advance our mission, wonderful. And you do it however you see fit. And most people chose to come together to do that. I think what's what's happening now as this renegotiation happens is. More and more companies are going to be are going to behave like tech companies. What I all I really mean by that is they're going to value their. We're already seeing that, and that's not a bad thing at all. And that's and that's a wonderful thing, in my opinion, <laughs> right? Um, where where we're, we're seeing companies who never had those types of of perks before and and didn't have flexibility because when I say treat employees well, that's all I mean. It's treating people like adults, being as thoughtful as you can about you know the workplace and their experience yeah. and things like that, and. Out of all that is where we've, you know, as Ritual, where we're seeing the large opportunities that as more and more companies think about how to redesign their in-office experience, a lot of them are finding that they can't operate their cafeterias anymore because in a hybrid world, it's too unpredictable. And a lot of them want software solutions, like easy software solutions to, you know, they understand that our employees maybe do a commute now that that they didn't have to do over the last two years. And you know, that's a little inconvenient. And and it's like, can we do one extra thing to make your day a little easier so that maybe you don't have to round back a lunch? 
and give you a lunch credit when you're in the office and simulate having you know, cafeteria. You know, this is almost, I would say, like the market evidence of the trend where we, we've, we've signed up hundreds of, of companies now who want to provide food as a workplace benefit for their employees in a, in a software model, right? They don't, they want to deal with physical sort of catering, hires and all that other stuff. It's good for us, but it's also, you know, we think a huge net positive for workers and, and you know, at workplaces. It's creating a lot of opportunity as well. So how does that work, Ray? A customer or a company can go to Ritual and they can sign up their company for an employee benefit that gives them access to the Ritual network? Yeah, exactly. So what we've kind of built is a software cafeteria, you'd call it that. I think our observation, again, going back to the neighborhood model is that you don't need a you don't need a cafe. You have a food court where you have nearby local businesses that have great coffee and sandwiches and lunch options. Why don't we create a you know be virtual cafe of all of the nearby businesses around? And we're seeing that you know companies really really love the because of the unpredictability of hybrid of this period. One of the things that companies really dislike is wasting food or you know catering catering a lot of food or having their cafeteria open and they can't predict. How many people are going to be there? So there's a lot of food waste and a lot of cost. And we kind of have a, a software model where people, you know, employees get credits when they're in their office or whatever is the policy that companies choose. You know, some, some choose to give people credits at home when they're working remotely. Some choose to do it in the office. What we've been working on for the last two years is, is really supporting groups of people how to kind of have an amazing experience with food in the workplace for either an individual or groups of people. A lot of companies have a lot of corporate policy around how they want things to be issued, how they want multi-office. A lot of large companies have, you know, a lot of multi-office travel that happens sometimes across cities. And they just want a seamless plan that, that works you know, for all people across all of their offices invoiced with one one daily bill and they all want to pay for all of these. That's kind of been a big growth there for us. Ray, where can people find you? Where can people find Ritual? So ritual.co, if you're a restaurant or a consumer or company that's looking to office benefits, our, our website has all of that information. And I'm on LinkedIn, pretty after third to be to be sat there. Ray, I'm a big fan of you, big fan of Ritual. Incredibly grateful for having you on. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Yeah, of course, sir. Thank you for tuning in to Behind the Brand presented by Neo. If you enjoyed today's show and are interested in learning about Neo for Business or our customer products, visit us at neofinancial.com. And don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify so you never miss an episode. 